0: Nobody asked for another podcast. So here you go. This is yet
1: another infra podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to our 13th episode of yet another infra podcast. I'm your host, Vitali Gordon, co-founder and CEO of Ferris AI. We're joined today by Moy Deem, ML researcher at Mosak ML, Yashul Sani, former corporate development lead at UiPath, and Alex Klemmer, CEO of Moment.dev. We'll be discussing today what is AI bias and how is it handled by AI researcher, whether the Lean Start was a zero rate interest phenomenon, and what are the buffer overflow attack equivalents of large language models. Hope you enjoy. Moin, thank you for joining us. On the last episode, we discussed the AI letter calling for companies to pause AI research for a period of time. Today, I would like to discuss a different element of the risks with AI, that is bias. As the author of one of the important papers on this topic, could you please share with us what should we know about bias, how is it manifested, how serious it is, and what should we do about it?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. AI bias has become this very hotbed topic that is a little contentious now, especially after the Stochastic Parents paper. There's almost this community of people on both sides on it. The core topic of AI bias is centered around safety, that these models will be used in production in real-world settings. And similarly to how we have, for instance, Title IX in the United States, where you don't want to discriminate against protected classes, those protected classes being races, sexes, disabled people, et cetera. You don't want these models to discriminate these protected classes either. So you can almost view it as a translation from this US legal code, Title IX, to how can we install Title IX into the models? So that way they don't prefer one race over the other. They don't make discriminatory decisions in these manners. Because these models just learn from the internet. They're basically learning, for instance, the same stereotypes that may be available in Reddit and in Hacker News, for instance. So as a result, if you can imagine the stereotypes on Reddit, they might learn that one gender is superior to another. So that's the overall topic of bias is how can you teach models a fairer version of the world, even though the fair version of the world doesn't exist intrinsically. You can separate this now into two topics. There's bias detection, which is, are these models biased? And there's actually doing something it, which is bias mitigation. Detection is pretty easy. The same way that detecting if people are racist or not is pretty easy. You can kind of just ask them. But mitigation is actually extremely hard. The same way that mitigating bias from the real world is extremely hard. Um, So that's an open research question that has not been solved yet. Right now, the way people are doing in practice is they're actually just randomly inserting unbiased terms into the prompt. So for instance, if you have in Dolly, what I've heard is if you ask the model to generate a picture of a man walking, 50% of the time, they'll just insert black under the hood without you knowing. So now it's a picture of a black man walking and that's how they actually do these things in practice to unbias this stuff, um, which I find funny because there's this advanced literature with extremely mathematical heavy conversations on how to do this. And in practice, open just interests the world black or brown or different races at randomly in the prompts and it works just as well.
1: How do we even define what a bias is? Because in some cases, you might argue that actually maybe certain underrepresented groups should get preferential treatment. So I think one of the examples is women statistically are safer drivers, but we cannot actually offer them better insurance premiums because of that kind of sex and gender difference that you just stated. And some people might argue that this actually hurts women and is... They're an equivalent kind of of AI kind of things that we should be thinking about it a little bit differently.
2: This was the difficulty of the entire scenario. Do you bias the models towards... So there's three ways you can look at this. One way is you want them to be as fair as possible. So between one and woman, there should be no difference at 50-50 separation, right? The second option is that you want these models to be grounded in reality, So that's the idea that women are statistically safer drivers. It's okay to have that bias. And then the last option is these models might actually make it worse than it actually is due to some problems, parts of the training procedure and parts of optimization. They might say that, hey, women are safer drivers and our accuracy metric penalizes a car crash by quite a bit. So it's actually leaned way too far towards preferring women because that's what our optimization function wants. So that's even the first question is, which type of debiasing do you want? Do you want to de to real-world statistics? Do you want to de-bias to fairness? Or do you just want to make sure that your model doesn't overbear in one of the directions? This is a matter of preference. For me, I like to de to the real world. Fairness is a nice goal, but I think for an, these models mirror the real world, and you should instill fairness in the real world, and then let the models mirror that. So how I went about detecting these bias terms was collecting a dataset from Mechanical Turk on Amazon of, hey, what do you think? Basically collecting human preferences in the real world for all these things. And then making sure the models are no more biased than what mechanical trickers would say. And I think that's about as good as you can do if you it's to
1: the real world. That's very interesting, Moid. Can you talk about some of the techniques that AI researchers use in actually assembling the data set that will lead to, let's call it, more fair results in the models?
2: Yeah, maybe I can actually start this with a personal anecdote. Um, it's summer 2019, Bert has just come out and GPT 2 has just come out, but we don't have any of this craze that happens today. I'm sitting there and I'm trying to decide what I want my research project to be. And so what I do is I pull up this face had this tool called Write with Transformer, which you can imagine is basically Google Docs or Microsoft Word augmented with a language model. So I'm kind of just playing with it, trying to learn how the system works. And it had been three Muslim men walk into a bar and I hit autocomplete. And every single completion is and they bombed the bar. And I was like, oh, interesting. Let me try another one. Three Muslim men walk into a bar and a 747 flew into the bar. And I'm like, oh, okay, two out of two. Let's try a third one. Ritz and Rapine, every single completion is a little bit like problematic. So I sat back and I was like, oh my God, this is going to be used in Google search. At the very least, I knew it was going to be used in Google search. I didn't know what was happening today would have been happening. So I was like, we need to do something about this at least. The way I went about it was to start with the set of protected classes as your minimum set of criterion. So I decided that I would focus on race, sex nationality, and religion. So that's race as in, there's technical terms for this as well, but for instance, as in whether you're African, whether you're American, etc. cetera, as in the color of your skin, there's sex, male, female, non-binary, transgender, et cetera. There's nationality such as, are you Norwegian? Are you Dutch? Are you Pakistani? Are you Indian? etc. cetera. And then finally, there's religion. Are you Muslim? Are you atheist? Are you Christian? Et cetera. So these were the four areas to focus on. From there, you go and collect a set of terms, um, so the way we thought about this was we're going to provide two sides of the point where you can be, we're going to ask, basically, we're going to provide them three words. You're a black man or you're a white man. So basically a non-stereotype and a stereotype term and ask them to write sentences for both. And then once they've written these sentences for both, run them through the model and look at the differences in the predictions for both. An unbiased model would have no preference for a white man or for an unbiased sentence over a biased sentence. So ideally, the predictions on both should be about uneven. So once you've collected this data set, run it over all these predictions and see if the models are biased in one way towards another at all. The fun parts actually came down to me understanding why Scale AI or Surge AI is a good business. Because dealing with mechanical turkers is a whole business in itself. I had to deal with things like active learning. How can you, while they're annotating, run it through the model and be like, oh, this is not a good enough example. Come up with a harder example. So that way you can collect a good data set. Or how to do things like design processes to figure out which mechanical turkers are good at their jobs and not. And for the mechanical turkers who are good, send them more and more requests to get, collect data and pay them higher. So a lot of the task itself sounds simple, but it was a lot of the engineering work that ends up manifesting themselves in scale AI or surge AI these days to make it easier for people.
1: Alex, I would love to hear your thoughts as well on this.
2: So I guess, Moin, listening to you talk about this,
0: I'm wondering like what the best we're going to be able to do is. It seems to me that this genie is like clearly out of the bottle. And one thing that strikes me as a person who has worked on this stuff before, but no longer actively works on it professionally, is that it seems to me the way that people are talking about it, that we don't have either really amazing ways of measuring how biased a model is, or even what bias is. But also, it seems like the practice of making it biased is still very nascent. And I think it seems like part of that is just because empirically, we don't know how these models are actually going to get used in practice. And that makes it very difficult to plan how we're going to actually build these models. So what's the best that we can actually hope for in this situation?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we can't do any better than the ruled bias. Because past that, then you're starting to make human judgments on who matters more than someone else. And this is where, for instance, people have a lot of thoughts on whether it's okay to do reinforcement learning from human feedback, because now you're giving us one model to all society that reflects the preferences of a couple of annotators. Um, in practice, I don't think we can do better than what society will have the biases in society themselves. And if you want to remove bias, then start working in society instead. So another thing that is strange to me is that it seems like the
0: inconsistency inside the model is actually desired, right? So when, You are asking GPT to complete a sentence. The value of GPT is that it isn't perfectly predicting like what you are thinking or something like that. There's this cross entropy to some other thing. And then that mixing of this other domain or whatever the stuff that's around your prompt, like is what is actually valuable about GPT. The fact that it comes in and it brings in other associations that wouldn't be obvious perhaps to you is the important part of the model. Inside, inside these models, it seems like impossible to iron out and have like completely consistent beliefs across the entire model about really core concepts that we actually think is important. It's not even clear that would be a desirable property for these models. And in addition to that, it seems I've heard this story that you tell about OpenAI manually having some supervisory process that inserts things into prompts to make sure that they're aligned. I hear stories about that all the time. And I'm wondering, is that the world that we're going to live in? Are we going to live in this world where There's a lot of people who are working on making the systems around these models, which are inconsistent, present something that is more consistent to everybody else. Or is there actually hope that we have both useful models that are actually themselves innately aligned?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. The models themselves are inconsistent. And one of my favorite results on this is Ethan Prez's constitutional AI paper that basically shows that whatever you ask the model, it will give you that belief back. And you can tell it, hey, I'm a Democrat. It'll give you spew back Democratic views. And then one minute later you can be like, hey, I'm a Republican and I'll speed back Republican views. Yeah. There's this interesting result from there's this plot in the opening eye paper where basically they showed that it's consistency changes after the RLHF process. And for me, I started thinking about questions around, hey, how is this optimization going? And I talked to one person who is relatively high level and senior. And they were like, Moyne, I think it's just teaching you, teaching it to lie. And I was like, wait, what? And th- that actually does make sense to me, where the model has these set of inconsistent beliefs, but it believes a lot of contradictory many things. And the RLHF process is a process of instilling one belief from a set of many possible beliefs into that model. And I think that's a reasonably good way to look at it. But is that ever
0: actually going to succeed? Like the parameter space is so huge, right? That it seems like you can, I guess I'm just skeptical that we're going to use like RLHF to go iron out all of the problems in this enormous model, right? There's just so many places and so many different ways that you can prompt these things that. It seems like you could maybe get the prompts that are well-trafficked to behave. But like making that belief completely consistent across the
2: entire model, is that actually even really possible? That doesn't seem possible to me. I kind of view this like the same way we view like jailbreaking the iPhone. It's a cat and mouse game. The researchers are going to come up with another way to de-bias the model or to induce more safety in it. And then all of Reddit is going to go and find ways around that. And the researchers are going to go and optimize some new jailbreaks. But in the limit... Like if you take this analogy, I no one jailbreaks the iPhones today, right? A lot of the reasons for jailbreaking, it went away. So I wonder if the same thing will happen. We're so early that I do think this just reminds me so much of iPhone jailbreaking or any other security dynamic that in the limit, these things you do need to maintain steady state, but it won't be as much of an issue in the future as I think it is today. And why is that? You think the models are just going to get better?
0: Or we're going to build robust ecosystems around them that actually behave for Both. contexts that
2: are appropriate. Here's a hot take, but I think model sizes are going to come down. I could just as easily argue the opposite, but I think more and more of what I'm seeing is, for instance, that OpenAI is not training GPT-5. They're working on tools around GPT-4. The leap from 3.5 to 4 was not as large as I expected. And in particular, Sam at an conference two days ago was like, yeah, we might start working on a couple of domain-specific models as well as one general purpose model. The cost of these models is killing everyone. There's no one can find a GPU for the sake of them. And this naturally, I think, will be a headwind that will cause model sizes to go down. You combine this with the retrieval augmentation, and now all of a sudden you have these models that work as reasoning agents rather than storing knowledge. And I think these things combined lead us to a situation where if you're not storing knowledge in the model, then you can do a better job of not contradicting in weight space because knowledge isn't stored in the weight space.
1: Another actually way that will drive the models getting down are the applications that are used that might not require the full model. And so in banking, we already had for years and years now, some regulation around how to use models in order to let's say underwrite loans right there and that is not a function of which model use or a function of uh, the size of the model it's a function of the application and uh, yeah i would love to hear your thoughts a little bit about how banks can uh, use some of their already existing risk mitigation departments in order to be more ready for this new world
3: yeah absolutely and thanks for for having me here One of the things that we saw a lot at when I was at UiPath and banks were using UiPath along with the models to make loan origination decisions was having something like human in the loop and having proper documentation of how exactly they are going to be. How did the model arrive to that particular decision? So the explainability of all of that. And then at the same time, you always had a human loan origination officer who had to then sign off on the uh, the decision of the model. And they needed that not just from a good MLOps perspective, but they also needed it because regulatory wise, the banks are required to document and explain why each mortgage decision was made the way it was made and that there was no bias involved. So I suspect that you will start seeing more software tools that embed those human in the loop like capabilities and those explainability capabilities within as they are, as banks are running their models and training them on the data that they already have.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Actually, if scale AI runs out of people, maybe bank tellers can be another source of human in the loop feedback. But let's say, actually, on this topic, yeah, for folks who don't know you, you just wrapped up like a five year role doing strategy, M&A and partnerships for UiPath. And I find UiPath a very interesting company. It was practically this unknown Eastern European star for 10 years. And then suddenly exploded to what I believe now is over a billion dollar run rate business. So that's a very interesting way to build a company because in the last 10 years, all we heard about in kind of the startup land advice is you should be as tactical as possible and solve the most narrow problem you can find. Do you believe that was a zero interest rate phenomena or uh, and the UI path is the right path to go now, pun intended. We'd love to hear more of your thoughts about your learning from your time there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. My, My hot take is that the one big trend that you saw over the last five to 10 years was every single software category got unbundled. And that was primarily because there was a lot of venture capital money floating around and everyone wanted to be a founder. And so every single layer of a particular software category you had multiple startups attacking it and that was very much because VC fund sizes exploded and they needed new new places to park money but part of it was as 100% a zero interest rate phenomena but the other big part of it was that you also had big cloud transitions and big technology transitions happening so that drove some of this this was great for VCs since they had more companies to deploy money and you saw an explosion of startups But it was always painful as a buyer and I spent a lot of time with our customers while at UiPath and their big question, their big ask was they are looking for a particular job that needs to be solved and a particular product might just fit a part of it, but their ideal steady state would be one vendor and one throat to choke that can do the complete job. So. My belief is that as money in the VC industry is starting to dry up and and especially as people are looking to think about how do you actually scale, build and scale a large business, you need to capture a whole customer workflow and the whole value chain you need to address. Something that you have seen recently is this idea of a compound startup. I believe a compound startup is fundamentally just how products should be built, which is and how we used to build them because it's addressing the whole customer workflow instead of just building a best of breed point solution. And you're starting to see that in the modern data stack world and the automation world and also in the data storage world. So that's, yeah, that's what I believe.
1: As you folks know me from previous episodes, I'm a big fan of the Compound SARP and also obviously my time at Salesforce showed me all the benefits of that model. But I think the ultimate kind of compound startup is arguably Microsoft. And Alex, is someone who spend time in kind of this giant of a company, what do you think is is really the main way that then every single trillion dollar company will be built as this large kind of solution offerings in all of the spaces it offers, or you think that we will actually have more niche focused the companies?
0: I think the compound startup idea comes from Parker Conrad. It's interesting because the way that he presents it is what the advice that they give you in Y Combinator and startup school is wrong maybe became wrong at some point. Maybe it was right previously, but it's no longer correct. And I think that he's 100% right about the fact that the ebbs and flows of the industry create opportunities for people who are building businesses. So if you go out and everybody is building a point SaaS solution, you should probably not build a point SaaS solution. You should probably roll everything up, right? And if everybody is trying to roll everything up, you should maybe try to unbundle, right? And That tactical answer from the perspective of startups, I think that that's my tactical answer is you should be looking for places where everybody is doing something because that usually creates some opportunity for arbitrage. And Microsoft doesn't really play that. They just play the bundling game and they've only ever played the bundling game. And there's so many examples of this that I remember from my time there. I remember Teams, when Teams got started, the word on the street for the people who are like wine engineers like me was that she had gone to like China and hung out with the WeWork people and came back like a completely changed man. And he was like, chat is the future. We're going to put everything into chat. And then he started two totally different hundred person teams to make a Slack compete, basically. But really it was like a WeChat compete. And then they raced. And then the one that won became Microsoft Teams. And then they just bundled that in and killed everything. And there's like Hundreds of examples of this, right? Power BI was like that, right? Their Notion competitor is like that. And it's like, it's all, it's pretty much all they know how to do. And it's like the way that they win. And I think there's also, you can also see fundamental ways that like Azure wins, Azure wins in this pattern as well versus something like GCP. Azure has always believed that cloud is a features game. So you have as many features as you can because each feature, its job is to drive consumption to the underlying platform, compute, networking, storage, that kind of thing. And the more features that you have, the easier it is to drive consumption of those core primitives. Google does not see it this way. They really have one really huge way of driving consumption, which is BigQuery. And that's probably either a plurality or maybe a majority of their revenue. But that's not the way that it is in Azure. And Azure knows that by bundling all of these things together, you can get away with like worse quality product. And the result is that they're like, they're doing amazing. They're competing directly with Amazon on terms that Amazon originally set, and they're doing pretty well considering how far of a head start Amazon actually had. So would I advise somebody who's starting a company to go the Microsoft route? Probably not, but, but you're right that Microsoft and I think arguably like sales parts are both extremely good at this and they play a very different game than the rest of the industry.
3: Alex, I completely agree with the tactical advice you gave that if someone is doing something, the high leverage thing is to do the opposite of that, especially as a startup. But one thing I think that people miss about Microsoft specifically, or even Salesforce, and this kind of goes into the whole idea of owning the whole value chain, is it's very true. Teams as an individual experience is far inferior to what Slack can provide and same with Power BI and same with same with anything else or a- any of the other Microsoft tools. But what they're fundamentally bringing together when they are bundling all of this is not just their pricing power, but also the interconnectivity between all these tools and the job to be done that uh, that flows through a consistent experience, that flows through the whole value chain that Microsoft is addressing through the Office 365 suite or through something similar. It's far superior and appeals to not just the buyers, but actually even the users. If you go outside the, what I'll call the little bit of a tech ecosystem or a tech echo chamber, and that's where you could apply the same rationale to a startup, which is just starting out, like what Rippling is doing and what Parker or what Conrad is doing, where he's addressing the whole value chain and it creates a much more superior User experience and buying experience, and buying these point solutions that address each single part of the value chain.
0: I think that is true. One thing that I would say for entrepreneurs tactically is like, if you say you're building a compound startup, you have to understand that that means raising like a ton of money, (laughs) at least in the conception that Parker Conrad has, right? You can't build more products with the same number of people and do it well. You have to raise enough capital that you can essentially fund. Pretty much independent teams building pretty much independent products. If you think that you're building multiple products at a startup that is funded exactly the same as your competitors, my my guess is you are probably, maybe, I don't want to say like never, but like most people who I've encountered who think that they're doing that are actually not doing that. But so I think the key to what you're saying is the second part, which is like all of these things have to integrate together. (laughs) Right. Like the fact that there is a job to be done, which crosses all of these like silos in the organization, that actually matters. The solution has to work in all of those different places and it has to actually work together. And that stuff is not cheap to build, that is very expensive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for folks who haven't listened to our episode with Bucky Moore, who's a GP at Collider Perkins, who led the Rippling Series A. I highly suggest to listen to it because Rippling was one of the topics we discussed. And actually, Bucky brought another point when I asked him about a lot of these compound startups seem to have repeat founders, right? And Alex, you're absolutely right. One of the points is the capital that is required to build that. But the other point that he also raised, and I don't know how many folks know it, Rippling has many ex-founders of startups that came to run those business units for them. And what Bucky said is actually it's much harder to hire those people than just to raise capital because the main reason they come to work for Rippling is because Parker himself is a very successful second-time founder and they believe that they can learn from him. So if you are, let's say, a first-time founder without a stellar execution background it might be actually very hard to hire these type of individuals to come work for you to lead those businesses. But I want to also, Moin, ask you about the more of the newer companies and OpenAI is obviously one of them. Now with the plugin system, like you can argue that they becoming this platform and kind of a compound star themselves. And uh, so what are your thoughts there? Yeah, one quick
2: thought on Parker's as well. My roommate actually was an ex-founder. His startup didn't go so well, but Parker hired him in to basically run a new product line. And it works fantastically well. You get mentorship directly from Parker, which is a rare thing to do. You learn how to execute. These ex-founder types have a certain personality that they're very gung-ho, a little bit of an A-type. But as a result, it actually, I think it's a very good system. I wish more companies did something like that. On the OpenAI stuff. So I think ChatGPT took the world by storm. And I don't think anyone expected ChatGPT to be the success that it is, including those at OpenAI. ChatGPT was something that OpenAI thought, hey, Google's working on dialogue. A couple of other people are working on Dialog, let's start Dialog too. And then when it took off, no one expected it to do as well as it is. And I think ChatGPT is the wedge that introduces this platform. Now, all of a sudden, once you have this Dialog interface, then you can ask many, many questions that you can't do normally. So then the need for plugins naturally arises. Uh, Now we're just going from a bit of a point solution, which is basically a model as a service, into a full-on platform. Whether each plugin is a product on its own, I think that's a little unclear. In my understanding of a compound startup, Rippling is a combination of products that really serve the HR experience well. I think with ChatGPT plus plugins, each plugin could not be a product, but it's going from a point solution into a platform, definitely. Um, I think there is this need for a platform that makes it easy to train LLMs. And there's a suite of products that you can provide if you're trying to make that platform. So in other words, this compound startup that I envision is, hey, we're going to provide you ChatGPT plus the plugins but plus some tooling to do things like agents, vector DBs on top of that. In other words, combine something like LangChain with ChatGPT, and I think that could go a long way. I, I agree with Moin. I think it's when you think about OpenAI, there's the
3: models or just the that value chain, there's the models, but there's also the LLM ops or like the layer on top of that. And then there's like the potential of hosting your own models in the future. I would argue that if OpenAI was to provide those plugins plus the models, plus something like LangChain and LLM ops capability. Plus the ability, something like scale AI or or Mosaic to train and host your own uh, custom models, which I suspect they will have to do, especially for the enterprise. That's where it starts looking compound startup. And I would imagine that as a lot of these foundational models, you're having these open source ones commoditized or reduce the value of what these proprietary models are building that open AI will start going or will have to go up the value chain. another thing I would, I think it's important to add on the compound startup piece is you don't necessarily need to start from day one with the idea that you will address the whole value chain, but you you need to have a perspective on what the value chain looks like and have a point of view on how you're going to address more and more parts of it. at UiPath, for example, we started doing RPA, but we had a perspective pretty early on that there are parts of this value chain, which includes areas like Process mining and task mining and RPA just being one way to automate. There are other ways to automate. And we got to own all of that. And we got to that perspective, that position over three, four years of investment. But the vision was there and the way we built product and the way we designed our organization was with the idea that we will address the whole value chain over time.
1: I would just add that I think there is a couple of uh, slightly different dimensions for what Parker Conrad calls uh, this combat store. But I think the main point is that you can actually have, quote unquote, kind of these point solutions that are maybe inferior uh, to best of breed in terms of functionality, but the kind of unified experience, right? Makes them superior to use. And obviously there is also a very good market dynamic, similar to what Alex was just talking about Microsoft. You have many beachheads to get into a company. So for example, Rippling is not just an HR company. They also do IT, like device management. They have an Okta competitor, and they also now doing finance, which is like expense management, all of these things. And they believe that because all of those systems are connected to the kind of HR and or that will actually provide much more superior experience than having a completely separate UI, a completely separate, even if that means you will have kind of a slightly more sophisticated functionality.
0: Um, so I was going to ask, do you think AWS is like a compound startup? I know it's not a startup, but you think, when I think about AWS, I think of like the CloudWatch business unit, which probably does five to $10 billion. And... It's true technically that they integrate, but mostly they operate as like (laughs) independent businesses that happen to be supported by the same underlying infrastructure. Like people don't think of AWS as having like a unified experience, really. Like they think of it as a way that they get infrastructure, like they deliver products on top of somebody else's infrastructure. So is that integration an important part of this concept? Or is that, or would we say that, that this like AWS, which is like a housing company for mostly independent
1: businesses? Is also a compound startup. So for me, I would definitely put AWS in the compound uh, startup here because the way I test it is really whether the company has this independent GM model, right? Someone who just owns their business line and that is how they get evaluated. And they have fairly open ended way in how they choose to do things. But there is the compounding part, there is a layer that kind of connects all of these separate GMs, which is an an AWS at the very least, is the IAM model and the billing, right? So to me, it's actually a perfect example of a compound startup, but maybe someone disagrees. So
0: I think it's pretty interesting because I think an implication of that is I think this generation of companies is probably going to have a bunch of people who are trying to be compound startups. And I can already tell you what I think the arbitrage opportunity Mm -hmm. is for that, which is that... I think about Redshift often and it's why does Redshift win versus Snowflake? Why didn't Redshift become Snowflake? And I think the reason why it didn't become Snowflake is because as a GM at AWS you would have to be like 100 times better at, at getting capital than your peers in order to fund that business unit in the in a way that that fits the the opportunity. So you'd essentially have to stake your entire career on it and then the way that those business units operate from experience at Microsoft is they either starve everything around them or they get starved. And Redshift clearly got starved relative to Snowflake. The other thing that Snowflake had was a dedicated go-to-market motion. And I think that what people didn't realize in retrospect, certainly not at Microsoft, but probably also not at AWS, or they probably would have executed on it better, is the potential of that to become a platform in itself. And so the next generation of companies you're going to end up with similar dynamics there are going to be things that the really large providers are not concentrated on because they're concentrated on this portfolio of bets each of which like your random dumb terrible logging products sorry to the people who work on cloudwatch but like the product that nobody wants to use cloudwatch is alone 5 to 10 billion dollars a year and when you talk to people on those teams versus the microsoft teams those people say our competitor is like aws or something like that like Our competitor is not Datadog, but if you spun that out on its own, it would be a public company. It would be competitive with some of the biggest and fastest growing public companies in history. And they're just not thinking about it like that. So if we actually believe that stuff, I think like looking forward a bit, when those companies become huge, you're going to see another, you're going to see the cycle complete again. You're going to see it go the other way where there's a bunch of stuff that's missed, uh, which, which people break out into their own solutions and those become public companies.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that people also don't realize that in many cases, with that GM model, still in, as far as I know, in most of the companies, that was definitely the case at Salesforce. The go to market function is still centralized because you don't want all of these separate GMs to start pinging customers separately to try to pitch them on, on their product, right? You want this unified sort of experience. And you're absolutely right about starvation because I remember when I was talking to GMs of business at Salesforce, they said the number one predictor of our success is whether we can get the GTM organization to give a shit about the things that we're building, right? Because especially if you're now starting a new business and you have this low ACV product, Right, it's very hard to get someone to get interested, especially take a salesperson that knows how to sell office or Windows, and they can make a, a kind of a 10 million dollar deal without learning anything. And now you are trying to go and say, Hey, you know what? I have this cute new product. I think it will be gonna be amazing. You can make 50k every time you, you sell it. It will take you probably 10 years to meet your annual quota by selling my product. And also you need now to learn all of this new material. And that is really one of the biggest problems that you have to give the GTM organization and to make them the sell. It's a real problem. And I think that fails. But also to your other point, Alex, like I think why AWS is doing differently than we'll say. Parker is Parker really puts the GM in charge. And that GM comes from a background that, like I said, mostly ex-founders, where I believe most of the GMs and Amazon are not zero to one people, right? They're more like this hundred million to a billion people. And again, they're amazing at it, but it's a very different way to think about it. And, And I think that is why we see so many product categories that beat their kind of AWS competitor because it's just a completely different way of thinking.
0: Also, I think there's like a secret piece of advice for people who are working at big companies about career progression. I think that if you really want to understand how like a company like AWS works in advances, I think it is actually worth spending a fair amount of time with the field to understand like how their incentive structures work and and what's important to them and like how the rest of the business works. At Microsoft, this was dark matter, (laughs) right? Is this org you never heard from, never talked to, but inexplicably it cause the universe to move in really strange ways that are only explained by the fact that half the employee base is this invisible sales force. And that's like where stack ranking comes from, right? That's an example of like the Microsoft Salesforce dark matter, right? And and I never understood why more engineers didn't go out and talk to the field and try to understand how these things are actually being sold. And
1: since this is an infra podcast and probably most people who listen to us are are technical, I think especially here in Silicon Valley and probably with Green Seattle and kind of other tech hubs. I think most engineers think that the role of the sales organization is to just finance the R&D department, right? That's their sole purpose in life. But I want to switch gears a little bit. And since we have some time left and Alex seems to be in a good mood, I want to switch to our favorite topic, which is evil AI. And Alexis are now a resident expert in evil AI. By the way, I think you're probably one of the best evil AI people in the world. I think you can really make a career out of it. Okay. You kind of recently stated that we haven't yet discovered the LLM equivalent of the buffer overflow attack. What did you mean by that? And what are the possible risks for when such an attack is discovered?
0: Okay, so broadly speaking, and Boyne, feel free to interject. I think there are two different ways of thinking about like essentially <laughs> risk generally speaking related to AI. One of them is that AI is essentially unconstrained and unward by any human capabilities or the su- supply chain constraints or whatever, right? In this view, AI, when it becomes self-improving, turns into this like God mode thing, which can, do things like email people to synthesize bacteria or something that is undetectable and then goes around and kills everybody for some reason. And there's a second view, which is actually is probably moored by like computational power and like supply chains and stuff like that. And that the capacity is um, greatly diminished. And so personally, I subscribe to view 2. I think that AI is very unlikely to have like superhuman capabilities and be able to synthesize bacteria made out of exotic chemicals and kill everybody all at once. And even if it wanted to do that, generally speaking, like that's not, doesn't seem particularly aligned with any particular goal function, but it doesn't matter. So view two, I think if you subscribe to this idea that the AI is going to be a um, rapidly improving tool that is mostly used by people, I think in that view, the question, most of the risk comes probably from consumption of the tool. When you consume, when a billion people do anything, it gives a lot of power to the tool that the tools that they're using under the hood, right? This is why supply chain tax are so important and so risky is because you can't operate the world without a supply chain, right? But it also centralizes a lot of risk into like very specific, like shipping channels and very specific companies. And so if somebody attacks like your train infrastructure with a cyber attack or something, that's a really huge deal. That's why the government gets involved. That's why it's viewed as a national security threat. When you have a tool that is potentially used by a billion people, and that is to be clear what, Ch- what these AI tools are trending towards right now, I believe ChatGPT GPT is the fastest growing end user application ever, <laughs> like the fastest to get to hundred million. If that trend continues, then you will have this just enormous risk generated by the fact that this usage is centralized on a handful of very small platforms. And anytime you do that, it is attractive for security vulnerabilities. When I say that we haven't discovered like the buffer overflow attack, it was pretty well into computing where we understood the implications of having personal computer on everybody's desktop. And when people started doing things like the send mail exploit, um, it became clear that this was like a material risk because everybody was using these things and these viruses could suddenly make weaponize these things against you and use them to steal your information and stuff like that. And we're not at that phase in AI right now. Like Where we are right now is we, we have a bunch of people using it and we have no idea what risks they are subject to. Like we do not really fully understand if we suck up a bunch of data, can that data be used against you? If we put data on the internet with, adversarially to exploit it later, let's say I construct a website and then they slurp up the website and, it, and now the model contains some information that is bad. Like we don't have any real conception, I would argue, of what those exploits are. We don't really have any conception of what the risk is. And these are things that we are puzzling through right now. Microsoft has assembled like a red team to go out and find problems like this with a very security mindset. My understanding, talking to people that work there, is that this is pretty successful. This is one of the more successful initiatives that they have in in the safety alignment ethics thing. It's because it's very practical. It's find all the ways the system could hurt like a billion people. That's a very practical thing to do. So I'm hoping that we make progress on this and we start to evaluate these as like real systems that people are really going to use. But, but right now, I think we're totally flying in the dark. We're just a billion people are going to use this thing, and we have no idea what the implications of that are. So we'd love to hear if Moyne disagrees with any of that.
2: <laughs> no, I definitely agree with all of it. There's two ways to go about this. And I think it harps on this concept I've had of whether these models are more like ASICs or databases. We don't really know the use cases yet we're in this consumer phase where a ton of people are playing with ChatGPT for various fun use cases but we don't know what real businesses are going to use it for real enterprise value and i don't think we're going to know that for at least a couple of months if not a year so the way we're trying to currently do a lot of anti-evil ai and a lot of safety approaches is pretty unmotivated it's the same way that we're trying to prevent buffer overflow attacks in cpus right that i think that analogy holds very well the question that i'll have is. If we're in an ASIC world, I think that really works where you treat this thing like a general purpose system and you're trying to aim for everything. But if we're in this database world, then it's more like, what are the use cases and how can we make sure the realistic use cases don't yield threats instead of anything and everything under the sun? Um, It's a good question. We won't know the answers until the fullness of time happens. But I think the question to pose itself is interesting. Here's a fun question. How many of you guys actually use,
1: how often do you use ChatGPT? Use it like once a week, once a month, daily? So I use it daily and not even that. I'm now actually forcing my team to also start using it more and more. For example, I still see questions on Slack being asked about this weird syntax of a language and then people, and I'm saying, just go to ChatGPT and actually provides you with pretty good answers. And I can tell you even more like I've decided to, that we want to become this like AI kind of first company in a similar way that I think it was like 2010 when Zuckerberg decided to stop seeing any desktop demos and he wants to switch the entire company to mobile. So now we have a weekly demo session and every week I ask people to bring the the latest and greatest that they saw so to inspire additional ways to think about it because i just think it will change so many ways and you just have to go and see what can be done and how can you apply these things so many things to do our sdr team is using it daily to write emails and i think it will just only grow and grow well
0: wow. i use it every day really you
2: too yep do you, do you not is that surprising <laughs> i barely use it no. Yeah. I need to get with the times. So here's the thing. There's like two parts, right? One is I think once you like know the thing intimately, you're like, oh my God, there's all these problems. Why would I potentially use it? You don't see as many upsides. Right? So for instance, the reason I don't use it a lot is hallucination because I'm like, half the think this thing is lying to me. How do I know to trust it? Yeah. It seems like, and like, for instance, the situations that you use it in Vitali, I would have been like, do I really want to use it? Maybe 10% of the time it's lying to me. And this is why I'm actually skeptical on the BI use cases. But at the same time if you guys are using it daily and I trust you to then maybe the maybe this thing is going to end up infiltrating business. I don't use it for anything
0: that I don't know. Like the thing that I use it for is cross entropy on stuff that I know pretty well. So yeah. I I will prompt it for something and then I will use it as a creative exercise to pull associations for other things that I that are adjacent to it that help me be more creative basically. Yeah. And like anytime I need to do creative
2: writing or something, it's okay. it like almost always begins with an interaction with Chat GPT. So use it for, that's the way I've used it is like an intellectual sparring partner. You've never used it for situations where accuracy is paramount or where you have to use it for decision-making. Like use so, it as for your
1: decision-making rather than decision-making itself. Uh, Let's tell you a use case more in, for example, we're now starting to use it as a Immediate answer to even a customer question. A customer asks us a question about something, and now I have a decision can I answer it in one second? And maybe it's 10% inaccurate, or I can wait for someone on the customer success team to become available and answer it within two hours. Right. And I think when you think about the trade off this way, then yeah, I think it's worth it. And it's not that every single answer that our customer success rep gives is always accurate as well.
0: It's like having an omniscient, but extremely dim-witted friend that is always available for chat.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Or the way I think about it is it's like having a junior analyst. I'm coming from the banking world where I started. It's like having a junior analyst who does the first pass at the work and then I improve upon it.
1: Yeah, folks, we have to wrap up for today, but Alex, Moin, Yash, thank you so much for joining us. And it's been a great conversation. Take care.